0: Okay. We are attempting, or I am attempting, and you are attempting to listen to a scripture meditation. What is a scripture meditation? I haven't figured it out. It's supposed to be shorter than a sermon. That's all I know. It's taking a text and it's thinking out loud on the text. And that's uh, what we are going to do. We're actually going to be looking at Romans 5, 1 through 5. And I'm told that this is printed in your bulletin. Yes, it is on page 10. There's a devotional book called Springs in the Valley, and it tells the story of a man who found a barn, and it is an interesting barn because in the barn, Satan keeps his seeds that he sows into the human soul. And so as the man was perusing this barn and checking out all the seeds that Satan stores in this barn to sow into human hearts he quickly found that the number of seeds of discouragement far outweighed any of the other seeds stowed in the barn. And he also learned that seeds of discouragement could be sown almost anywhere, everywhere they could be sown. There was no limit to what they could do. And so because he saw this, he went on a mission and he started relentlessly pushing and prodding and questioning Satan and asking him, trying to find the limits. Are there limits to the Extent in which you can sow seeds of discouragement in the human soul. Is there a border that you don't cross? Is there a type of soil that your seeds of discouragement cannot germinate and cannot implant and cannot grow and develop? Relentlessly. I mean, the picture is is pretty impressive. Well, Satan finally worn down and reluctantly admitted something. He said, there's one place, there's one type of soil that my seeds of discouragement cannot thrive. And where is that, the man asked. And sadly, Satan said, in the heart of a grateful person. In the greatest letter ever written, the Apostle Paul says not giving thanks to God is the root of all human sin and human misery, that it is the root of all personal and emotional fractures, relational fractures, worldly system fractures, that everything could be traced eventually down to one root and he talks about it in the greatest letter ever written in romans one he talks about they did not give thanks to god and it was their undoing so how do we since we're thinking out loud on thanksgiving weekend here how do we give thanks to god how do you become a grateful person how does that happen i mean how does it really happen i mean beyond you know saying grace at the meal every time you sit down to eat, bowing your head in front of your coworkers and all that, how do you really become genuinely a really grateful, thankful person? Now, the answer is simple, but it's easily missed. And please bear with me here. Why are we thankful? If we were to kind of look at the DNA of thankfulness, if we were to cut it open, what does it consist of? What is thankfulness in its essence? What is it? This, is, this was fascinating for me. It might not be for you, but it is for me. Think about it out loud. We are thankful to someone because they did something for us. They gifted us. They graced us. And to that, thank you. We're thankful. So in other words, we're ungrateful and unthankful when we fail to see and celebrate to recognize and rejoice in something that someone does for us. Thankfulness presupposes great deeds, great accomplishments, great things being done for you. And it, it overwhelms you with thank you. Right? So there's no greater gift, and this is what the passage we're looking at, there's no greater gift given, there's no greater grace to be graced with, there's nothing to be more thankful about in all the cosmos than what's loaded here in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 1 is possibly the greatest verse in the greatest book in the whole Bible. Now, you look at it. Look at Romans 1, 5.1. And as I look at it, why doesn't thankfulness just spontaneously spill out of our hearts when we read this? Now we're moving to the scripture meditation. We're moving to the point or the dominant thought that I would like to unpack this morning. Why do we miss the meaning of Romans 5.1 in our lives even though we can recite in our minds its content? Why do we get the proposition and not necessarily the power of Romans 5.1 in our lives? Why do we experience so little of Romans 5.1? Those of us that are trekking up Mount Sinai, why do we treat Romans 5.1 like it's a vapor in vain? This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Romans 5.1 and answer that question. Because Romans 5.1 answers that question. Romans 5.1 is about how God's justification becomes real to you. How it moves from an awe-inspired exposition to be understood, to work deeply and powerfully made real in your life. That shift, that shift from, from understanding it and it being made real is the transition in the point of Romans 5, 1 through 5. That's what we're going to look at. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Scripture meditation. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured, the word literally means flooded, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we ask that these moments that we have in this text would be moments in which you actually give and grant what you say. We ask, I ask, for ourselves that you would create the reality that is doctrinalized on this page? Would you turn the doctrine into drama in real life? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the therefore in verse 1 is loaded. It's so loaded that it's about ready to break. If you look at the therefore in verse 1, if you looked under the suspension, you'd see the suspension bending under the weight of what it's carrying. Therefore is carrying an incredible load. Therefore in verse 1 is carrying all of chapters 1 through 4 of Romans. Did you know that grammar could do that? (laughs) Did you know that grammar could carry such a weight? I mean, when you, get to the, when you get to therefore in verse 1, it is carrying the whole message of Romans on its shoulders. And it says, therefore, the whole message of Romans 1 through 4 is hanging on its shoulders. It's, it's, you get to Romans 5, and, and, and it's coming to the finish line. It's collapsing. Therefore, blah, 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 blah. Romans 1 through 4. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, In this short participle phrase, Paul sums up Romans. And here's how he sums it up. You ready? The awe of justification. I mean, by the time Paul gets here, he is breathless. He couldn't wait to get here. Because he spent many of the first chapters previous making everybody silent, Before a holy God. And so by the time he gets here, he is breathless, he's excited, he can't stand it. I mean, how many times is he talking about rejoicing? Anytime someone talks about rejoicing and sufferings, you know something's going on with them. They're not different. Something extraordinary is going on for someone to say, and more than this, more than the presence of God, we rejoice in our sufferings. Can you imagine? this is otherworldly, this is breathtaking, he's in awe, and he's just saying it. And here we are, we start right there. Now, many of us, though, we get the proposition of justification. We get this. You right now can give me the catechism answer, many of you, most of you. The kids can. Kids? Can you? Okay, good. They can. We get its definition, we get its doctrine, we get its thought, we get its idea, but the the proposition we get, but the power is more elusive in our lives. Richard Lovelace is a church historian. He's a scholar of spiritual revivals and awakenings on the on the individual level and on the corporate level. He is a professor, highly respected in this field, up in Gordon Seminary in Boston, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and. He writes, it is therefore not surprising that many congregations which are full of regenerate people, he's talking about Christians, many congregations that are full of Christians, real Christians, regenerate people, are nevertheless not very alive spiritually. Wow. What do you mean? Well, you go on, you find out here's the reason he gives for our spiritual dullness, for all of our spiritual dullness. It's interesting. First, you got to see how interesting it is and the answer That it's not. In other words, the reason for our spiritual dullness, as he's going to affirm, is not because of the absence of spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts, spiritual willpower, not even evangelism and personal holiness, not even a a commitment to want to be more spiritually alive. It's not the absence of that. That's kind of shocking. And he also says it's not the absence of some secret access to the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is a student, a scholar of church awakenings and church revivals in the history of the church, from the Reformation, all of them, Pentecost, Reformation, first and second. And he also says, I mean, more contemporary today, because I think we get swept up in this. It's also not the absence of exciting, inspiring worship music and worship services. That's not the reason. Loveless gives this reason for the widespread spiritual dullness in the church. You know what he says? I love the picture. He says it's the lack of warming ourselves at the fire of justification. The lack of having your heart and your life warmed at the fire fire of God's justifying grace and justifying love that is why we're spiritually dull so how does justification become real to us Romans 5 1 through 5 is after that question Now, before we answer that question, we've got to all get on the same page in our understanding of what the awe of justification is, okay? So let's do that, and then we're going to move into how it becomes real to you. So let's get it down what it is. Let's get down verse 1. We need to understand what that means. Justification is the driving longing in the human soul. Every time I say this, I think of Dave Hunt in our class on Wednesday nights. Ready, Dave? The God-shaped hole in the soul, right? The texture the specific texture of the God-shaped hole in the human soul is carved out of and in the shape of justification. We must have it. We cannot live without it. If we do not have justification, we experience an emotional death, a personal death. And this personal death, this emotional death is demonstrated and evidenced by dominating dark emotions in our life. Things like despair and depression fear and anxiety, a driven, driving, running yourself into the ground kind of work ethic, a demanding, got to have perfectionism. Okay, And another other disturbing dark emotions, and it's not like all of a sudden you have a blue day, but it's the kind that overrun you. It's the kind that are uncontrollable surges that you cannot flick your switch or flick your willpower to control. They just manifest themselves to you, and you don't know what's going on. Justification is not an option. It's not like having three months of pay in your checking account. And some of you think that's not an option. Good for you. The rest of us would love to know how you do that, right? But that is not, justification is not an option. We must have it. If we don't have it, we will try to find it somewhere. It is the driving, defining, longing of the human soul. Now, justification is pictured in Jesus' story of the two lost sons, so what we're going to see in the, in the story of the two lost sons is justification as doctrine turns into drama. It's just pictured in story. And the drama really starts moving as soon as the father sees his younger lost son. I mean, this is an unbelievable story. We've got to re-enter it. There's a great book written on it, The Prodigal God. Fascinating, powerful story. But when you get that, when you see, when the father sees the lost son, all of a sudden the doctrine turns into drama. Because when the father sees the lost son, he loves to see the lost son. He delights to see the lost son. He's not seeing when he sees the son thinking in his heart, in his actions, in any part of him, Oh, no. I mean... Like he's got to hold his nose. And his disappointment is just all over his face, even though he's smiling. Welcome back, son. Yeah. He delights. He loves to see the lost son. And as soon as he sees him, it's now a blur of action because he takes off running. And what we got to see in this text is older, ancient Near Eastern men don't run. First of all, they're wearing dresses. You don't run in a dress. Second of all, it's completely undignified. It's completely dishonorable for an elder, ancient Near Eastern man to tuck up his robe, not his dress, and take off running for his son. And when the father gets there, it's overwhelming. The the scene turns into a blur of hugs, embraces, kisses, and giftings. Before you even know it, he's embracing him. He's kissing him. He's taking off his royal robe, putting it around his son. He's taking off his royal ring, giving it to his son. And all of a sudden, the son's status is changing right before his eyes. All of a sudden, the kingdom of his father is being given right before his eyes. And the son is just standing there being graced, being gifted. Being gifted. The son is just standing there being loved, doing nothing. The son just stands there in awe of his father justifying him. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The drama of the lost son, if we were to put it in doctrine, is this... God accepts the unacceptable. God accepts the lost. God accepts the messed up. God accepts the corrupt. God accepts the deeply flawed. God accepts, what else is there? The sinful. God warmly takes in and welcomes the stranger, the cosmic outsider, the one who's homeless. It's another picture throughout the scriptures. Another picture all the way back in Jeremiah that's now even brought into full clarity here in Romans is that God lovingly clothes the naked. God lovingly clothes clothes the unrighteous and the ungodly, the cosmic failures of the world. But get this. He, he lovingly clothes them with the most precious commodity in all the cosmos, he lovingly clothed them with the royal robe of righteousness of his own son. This is astounding. This is unbelievable that, that God himself takes the corrupt and the ungodly and the unrighteous and the naked and the deeply flawed and the powerless and the hopeless and the despairing and he gives them the most precious commodity in all the universe. His own son's righteousness. Justification. God justifies the ungodly and there's now peace with God. Verse 1. Paul further describes the awe of justification in verse 2. Look at verse 2. This is what he does. He starts describing, he says, this justification gives open access to the most beautiful and the most otherworldly and the most immeasurable, infinite, incomparable being in all the universe, the glory of God. Justification throws open the doors, gives wide open access to the most beautiful being in all the universe. Now, normally this would be terrifying. And those of us that are going through the Ten Commandments, we know it, it's terrifying. Remember, think back to Mount Sinai, smoke, battle trumpets, thunder, lightning, any time Access to God happens in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. It's terrifying. But what's different here is they're not coming to a mountain of terror. What's happening in verse 2 is you're given access to a realm of grace. A kingdom of grace. The text literally says you stand in it. You go forward, grace. You go to the left, grace. You go behind, grace. You go to the right, grace. I'm going to outrun this place. You can't outrun it. You stand in grace. Everywhere you stand, you stand in grace. All right, how does the awe of justification become real to you? That's the question of the text. So verse 1 and verse 2 gives us the awe of justification. Verse 3 through 5 makes it real. How does that happen? How does it reach us? How does it restructure us? How does it become real? How does it, as Edward were to say, listen, I can tell you about honey all day. You got to taste it. How do you taste it? How does that happen? Give me three preliminary thoughts and then we're going to answer it. Here's the first preliminary thought. We can't control the answer. The realities of verse 3 through 5 you cannot control. It's a God work. It's a Holy Spirit work. Now, this is good news. It's good news because genuine thankfulness will arise and start there. You really become a grateful, genuine, thankful person when we begin to get that it's a God work. Okay? Preliminary thought number two. Even though we can't control it, we can ask him for it. We can ask God to make Jesus real to us. We can ask him to make justification real to us. We can ask him to do it. In fact, that is one of the major forks in the road in this passage. Those who ask, those who don't. It's a real fork in the road. I mean, it seems so simple, doesn't it? But we can ask him to make himself real to us, or we don't ask him. These are, this is a real real significant choice okay preliminary thought number three the last one the elements of the answer we're going to look at are not in a wooden order it's tend to and sometimes it's taught as if first you get this one and once that one's completed you get this one and then when that one's completed you get this one it's not a wooden order it's more symbiotic it's more like pistons going up and down the up is distinct from the going down but they happen together They're symbiotic. They work together. So the things, the elements that we're going to look at in verse 3 through 5 are together. They're distinct, but they're inseparable. They're together. They work together. They each overlap into the other. And they each work back into the other, even what's been worked back into them. Okay? So it's not wooden. This. Enter out of that door. Shut that door. Now we get this. And then we get this. All right? You with me? All right. Here we go. You ready? First one How does the awe of justification become real to us? Answer by suffering. 5 3 We rejoice in our sufferings. Suffering gets our attention, pain does that. One summer in college, I was in a summer missions project in Wildman, New Jersey. Right across from the place that we lived was like my second home. It was called Attila's Gym. I mean, it was the old school gym, not the ones you go in, you don't sweat because the temperature's perfect. Can't stand those gyms. This one, no air conditioning, bars on the windows, big dudes, lots of sweat, lots of grunting, lots of testosterone. Great place. I'm in there and I'm doing some barbells. And I go to lay the barbells down, and I didn't realize that this particular bench had bars that came out. So the bars was about this high of steel, and it ran out from the bench like this. So I came down, put the weights, smash my fingers. (laughs) This finger blew up instantly. And I thought, ah, no big deal, it'll go away. We had our meetings that night, three hours of meetings. The pain was all-consuming. I couldn't listen. I couldn't look at the scriptures. I couldn't sing the songs we were singing. I couldn't pray. All I know, my finger was killing me. I said, "Ah, it'll go away. I go to bed. I can't sleep. If I moved it anywhere below here, it was throbbing and hurting, consuming pain, right? Finally, the next day, I couldn't take it any longer. I went over next door to the girls' lodgings, and I said, does anyone have a needle? Yep, here's a needle. I went into the kitchen, turned on the burner, got it. It was red hot, laid the needle on the burner, got the needle red hot, took it to the outside of my nail, and stuck it in. Finger explodes. But boy, the relief. (laughs) The relief was phenomenal. Pain narrows your options real quick suffering brings us to another fork in the road you can either call upon God in your suffering or not call upon God in your suffering I mean Hosea gives one of the most dreadful terrifying pictures I think of suffering you can have it describes A person writhing in pain on their bed, but refusing to call upon the Lord. Quote, they do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. It's a fork in the road. When you suffer, you can call upon him or not. Now, the last thing I want to say about suffering is don't make the mistake of thinking that only righteous suffering is one of the links that make it real. In other words, yeah, we know suffering. Suffering is one of the links of making justification real. This is the first link we're looking at. But it's righteous suffering. I mean, the the suffering that comes from my sin and the suffering that comes from my idolatry, the suffering that comes from me messing things up, that can't be a part of making it real. That can't be. That kind of suffering is the consequences for my mess-ups. It's the consequences. It's the punitive punishments that I deserve that have nothing to do with the make-it-real justification chain. Do not make that mistake. The Bible knows no such dichotomy of suffering, no such distinctions of suffering. And Paul later attacks that kind of thinking when he goes to Romans 8.1. He says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation when you suffer. This is not punitive. No condemnation when you're suffering is because of your own idols killing you. There's no condemnation. That suffering is not punitive. It's not like, well, you know, God loves you, but the consequences are still there, son. What kind of consequences? The punishing kind? The I'm mad at you kind? There's now no condemnation. Even in your suffering as a Christian because it's your own mess, consciously you did it and entered into it and it became your mess, or you're discovering a new mess in you that you didn't know was this big a mess, but you're discovering it. No condemnation. It's never punitive. It's all lovingly directive now. Another word would be fatherly discipline now. Okay? All right. We rejoice in our sufferings. Notice it says it's plural. It's not, pl- it's not singular. We rejoice in our suffering never to have another one again. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. How does the awe of justification become real to us? By enduring. First by suffering, now by enduring. Remember, these aren't wooden, isolated links in a chain. They're connected. Endurance is not suck it up. Endurance is a spiritual skill. Endurance is a spiritual process of learning to trust God. Endurance is going into God's gym, not the corny ones on the t-shirts, but literally going into God's chain, training center and him training you and how to trust him, him coming in and taking you into his process, his school, his training, how he helps you teaches us to trust him, how he works into your heart, real hope in a process, in a school. The book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says, listen, it's painful. Working out is painful, but it produces a crop of righteousness and peace. And notice the word by those who have been trained by it. Endurance is a training process. Endurance is a place where you go To have stuff you didn't have before become yours. It's training. It's boot camp. It's a new way of living. It's a spiritual makeover. Now, God delights in endurance because God is the God who endures. The reason why he delights in endurance is because it's an aspect of his character. God perseveres forever in loving kindness, we're told. In the scriptures, Hesed has said, it endures forever. The literal word endures forever. So God perseveres in mercy. He perseveres in hope. He perseveres and endures on behalf of his people. Not only that, Jesus has said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So what's happening in endurance is something that's really Godlike. What's happening in endurance is you're in that school and you're enduring, you're learning to trust God, and God is carving endurance And real stuff into your soul. That's what's happening. And endurance, notice what happens next, produces character. So we're moving here. How does the awe of justification become real to us? By tested character. Tested character is not a pass or fail test. If it was, we all fail. So we've got to eliminate that kind of understanding of when God tested Israel. Oh, are they going to pass this test or not? And one level it is, but on another level it's not. What I mean by this, i got to get redemptive historical here. Yes, the nation of Israel was tested, just like Adam was tested, because they are different than you and I. We didn't sin and do not sin like Adam did in the sense that I'm a human representative of all of you. And what I do, I'm sorry, is dependent on me to affect you. But the essence, the reality is... We're tested, not in a pass or fail way, but we're tested in a way that actually creates what God is after. In other words, endurance produces a tested character. When you're in the school of God's training, in the process of God's gym, while you're enduring, while you're learning to trust God, while hope is being worked into your heart, when that's happening, you change. You know, the old images, the the dross comes off the gold, which is faith, and it's scooped away. The heat's turned up, the impurities rise, it's scooped away. You begin to change. So endurance, in that, while you're enduring, while you're in that season, real life change is taking place, okay? But notice, it's not the kind of life change that you and I crave after. It's not the kind of, oh, Lord, help me, change me, oh, I'm changed, it's, oh, Lord, help me, change me. You bet. We're going into the valley of deep darkness, son, and we're going to be here a while. No, let's go another way. Endurance produces life change, change life. Now, look what's happening, what's next? And tested character does what? It produces hope. How does the awe of justification become real? Suffering. Endurance, tested character, hope. Hope grows out of the soil of tested character. Hope grows out of the school of suffering. Real hope goes down into your heart when you suffer. Hope does not put us to shame. I want you not to miss this. The opposite of justification is condemnation. The opposite of justification is rejection and alienation and banishment and abandonment and terror and doom and punishment and failure of your very being. The opposite of condemnation is shame. Hope never puts you to shame hope makes real justification when hope is present you feel God's acceptance when hope is present you see the father run for you Embrace and kiss you. Take off his own robe, wrap it around you. Take off his ring and gift you. Hope makes justification real. And why does hope make justification real to us? Here's the last part of that verse, right? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the lifeblood of hope. God loves me. God loves me. Real justifying love. This is God's end game. This is God's goal. This is, God is on the move in your life to make you know he loves you. That's the end game. So do you t- see the textual flow here? We start up at verse 1. We have justification understood. By the time we're done in verse 5, we have justification made real. Romans 5, 1 through 5 is real Christianity. It is the Christian life. It's not extraordinary. It's not different. It's not a higher plane. It is Christianity. All Christians live and walk in Romans 5, 1 through 5. Romans 1 through 5 is how you become a grateful person. Romans 5, 1 through 5 is how justification becomes real to you. So here we go. Justification understood. The awe of justification. How does that become real? Well, understand it. That's a good thing. Understand what it is. Suffering. Endurance, tested character, hope, justification made real. Amen.